You're listening to So You Want to Be a Writer, the podcast that's all about the world of writing and publishing. My name's Valerie Koo and I'm your co-host and CEO of the Australian Writers' Centre, where you'll find writing courses and a very supportive writing community. I usually co-host this podcast every week with my partner in crime, Alison Tate, also known as A.L. Tate, author of The Firestar, A Maven and Reeve Mystery. That's one of her many books. I am without the wonderful Alison in this in-between episode, and uh, I'm bringing you a story session where it's just you, me, and our guest author of the week. In this in-between episode, I'm bringing you a story session, and in these sessions, you'll hear the first chapter of a book that we recommend, often read by the author, who will also give you a bit of an insight into their writing process. We love bringing the first chapter to you like this because it lets you sample something new, and hopefully you'll discover some new authors. It's a great way for us to bring the bookshop to you so that you don't have to go down there and browse and flick through the books and go through lots of reviews on websites and stuff like that. You get to hear from the author themselves. This week I've chosen The French Gift by Kirsty Manning. We've had Kirsty on the podcast before, back in episode 240, but this is the latest breathtaking novel from her, whose previous books included The Lost Jewels, The Jade Lily, and The Midsummer Garden. This time, Kirsty takes readers from the French Riviera and a German labour factory in the past to present-day Paris, weaving a tale of secrets, bravery, and friendship. So here is the blurb from the book, so you can get an idea of what the book is about. Friend Prison, 1940. Margot Bisset, a former maid from the Riviera, finds herself in a prison cell with writer and French resistance fighter Josephine Morant. Together, they are transferred to a work camp in Germany where the secrets they share will bind them for generations to come. Present-day Paris, Evie Black lives above her botanical bookshop with her teenage son Hugo. Nursing a broken heart, Evie receives an unexpected letter – she clutches an opportunity to spend a magical summer with Hugo on the Côte d'Azur. It's here on the Riviera that the past envelops them and Evie attempts to unravel the official story of a famous novelist. If she succeeds, a murder from a lifetime ago may be solved. Inspired by a true story of iconic French resistance fighter Agnes Humbert, whose secret journal shed light on a little-known aspect of World War II, the French gift will captivate readers from beginning to unforgettable end. And okay, so not only will Kirsty be reading an excerpt from her novel, the first chapter, she also shares the inspiration behind the story and gives some insights into her writing life. So here is Kirsty Manning reading from her latest novel, The French Gift. Hi, I'm Kirsty Manning, and I'm the author of The French Gift. Valerie has asked me to record the answers to some questions before I narrate the first chapter, so here it goes. Question number one, what inspired me to write this story? Well, I had read about the decadent parties of the Riviera and the Côte d'Azur in the mid-1930s to the late 1930s, um, where swimming pools were filled with buckets of champagne and slippery slides went from the pool down the cliff face into the ocean and there were cocktails for breakfast, lunch and dinner and parties were full of um, guest lists including the Churchills and the Hemingways and the Duke and Duchess of Windsor and everyone seemed to be outdoing each other in this um, extravagant uh, party making if you like and storytelling 
And one hostess actually planned a faux murder party. She arranged for one of her guests to pretend that they were dead and for the police to arrive and question everyone else at the party. And I thought, what a thrilling place to begin a book and um, imagine all the things that could go wrong in that scenario. So that was my starting point for The French Gift. But in the meantime, this was bubbling along, this decadence and extravagance just before World War Two, and I wanted to um, capture the story of the women in the free nylon factory that went from France through to um, Germany. I was captivated by the story of Agne, Agnes Humbert, who was a resistance fighter. She wrote one of the... Um, early newspapers, underground newspapers called Resistance. She was captured and she gave nothing away and she was deported and sent to work in the free um, round factory, which was um, described later by the French government as one of the murderous of all the labour camps, the Nazi labour camps. And, um, and she has recorded her time in French imprisonment, her trial, and all her time in incarceration under the Nazi... Um, concentration camp and I just thought we haven't heard a lot of um, female stories from this era we certainly know nothing of the plight of the women in the rail factories and so it's a story of a um, based on the memoir of Agnes Humbert and the um, I guess how these two worlds the decadent happy France collides with Nazi Germany and the stories that unfold from there. Question number two, can you describe your writing process? Well, I always start with an idea and then of course my key characters and then early on I map out a rough structure in Scrivita and then I start writing the chapters a bit like you would uh, a jigsaw puzzle because I write often in two eras, sometimes three. And I'm just trying to map out the line or the plot of each um, of the historical storylines. It's a bit chaotic and it's a bit messy, but it works for me because I can switch between them depending on how I'm feeling. Um, and often I, I have an end point that I'm writing to for each of them, but I'm not quite sure often where the overlap in the story lies and that kind of comes to me in the writing. So I generally find once I get down to the business of writing that it starts to flow really quickly. I give myself a word count of somewhere between 1,000 and 2,000 words a day. Sometimes I don't hit that. Sometimes I write more. Um and I have deadlines and I um, so I give myself a bit of scaffolding and wing it in between. Number three, what was the most challenging aspect of writing this book? Uh, well, I wrote it during the pandemic. So and I'm in Victoria. So uh, and I have three children. So um Usually when I'm writing, I have the luxury now, because all of my children are at school, of having long, um, many hours to myself during the day to research and write. And that wasn't the case. So um, the challenging aspect was trying to write it at the dining room table with everyone else kind of walking past and asking me how I'm doing and what I'm writing and would I like something to eat and what was there to eat and what was there for lunch? So, um, 
Yeah, I think uh, it wasn't technical aspects of writing this book. It was just my um, physical situation and state of mind at the time. So, um, But I have to say that the process of writing this book gave me something to kind of pull me through that long yoke of lockdown and it really gave me a great sense of purpose and something to think about to get out of my own head. So I... Um, was very fortunate to be a writer during that time, I think. What's the most rewarding aspect of writing The French Gift? Well, the most rewarding aspect of writing this book was uh, getting to the end. No, I'm kidding. It was, uh, I guess, uncovering the stories of Agnes Humbert and um, the stories of her contemporaries, her life, in um, really she was quite a mag magnetic character and um, a woman with lots of verve and how how the women really ran the underground in France for so long and um, took the reins and really did quite brave things um, ushering you know airmen out of France and um, distributing newsletters and writing on money and campaigning for de Gaulle's troops and um, just any number of things and and getting messages to people in prison and then when she was imprisoned herself uh, making sure that all the women around her were um, safe and okay and recording their stories and recording her stories. And I think, um, you know, we're hearing more and more in the media how the voice of women, we need to stop and we need to listen to them because men have traditionally recorded the history and they've certainly written the history and now I think it's time um, to sit back and really listen to what women have had to say historically and what women have to say now. And women have always been strong and women have always been remarkable. And uh, they sort of serve as the emotional ballast for their community, for their friendship group and for their family. And they are the ones that kind of quietly gather people and drag them through. And I think that is extraordinary. They've done it right through history. I've written about it in each of my novels, especially The Jade Lily and The Lost Jewels and now in The French Gift. So, uh, I think the rewarding aspect of writing this book is getting uh, another unknown female voice out in the world and if I can give that a platform through this novel and send people off into um, areas they may not have heard about before, I think I think that's enormously satisfying. Question number five, what are your top three tips to aspiring writer? Well, my number one is to let go of perfection because um, often what I think I'm going to write or what is going to pour from my fingertips gets lost in translation sometimes. And sometimes I can be quite disappointed at, at my first attempts of um, my writing on the page. But here's the thing, that's only sometimes. More often than not, I look back at what I'm written, what I've written, and it's like a little present to myself. And it's really... Um, amazing that once you get into the flow of writing you'll look back and there'll be pockets of magic there and you'll be so grateful that you sat down and did that work so um so let go of it being perfect 
first time. You can fix it in the editing and the rewriting. Um, but let go of that perfection and just, just write what you think needs to be written. So that brings me to tip number two, just write. Just sit down, writing is a verb, do it. And top, um, my third tip would be to read with purpose. I think um, every writer I know is a huge reader. We all are reading other writers to be inspired by them and see um, see how they construct, I guess, conceit or red herrings or um, love or loss or how they tread tenderly over very um, fragile areas, emotional areas. And there's a lot to be learned by reading how other writers do it. So um, read, I would say. Let go of perfection, write, and then read a lot. Now I'm going to narrate the first chapter of my book, The French Gift. Chapter 1, Margot, Villa Ceneri, Côte d'Azur, 14th of July, 1939. The grand marble foyer was bursting with colour and excited conversation. Politicians, artists, writers, socialites and local French gentry sipped champagne and martinis and greeted each other with kisses to each cheek, merry backslaps and firm handshakes. A five-piece band played in the corner, and the warm summer air was thick with expensive perfume, pollen, and a hint of cigar smoke. In the simple uniform of a housemaid, Margot Bisset squeezed through the crowd, slipping past women in drop-waist sequin gowns and sheer silk sheaths, and men in tailored tuxedos. Her first job for this part of the evening was to carry a cup of incense among the guests, filling the room with wafts of clothes and olive oil. Her mistress, Madame Tilly Monroe, had pushed the cup into her hand and purred, So exotic, darling, very seductive. Just keep moving around the foyer until it runs out. Madame Monroe's backless silk dress trailed along the floor behind her. Oh, look, you've got a streak of gold paint across your cheek. How sweet. She pulled a handkerchief from her beaded purse and wiped the paint off Margot's face. Mercy, madame. The older woman's voice dropped as she tugged Margot into a corner, away from the guests. About her little game tonight. It's very important to do exactly as I say. Unease crawled up Margot's spine. Vous comprehendez? Margot nodded, holding her breath. Good. Now you need to hide yourself on the balcony, overlooking the pool. Just before midnight, pull the revolver from the behind the palm and shoot it into the air when the fireworks go off. It's loaded, so make sure you point the barrel well into the sky. We need the gun to be smoking when they find Peggy's body. Evidence! Are you certain? said Margot warily. Absolutely, darling. Now go. Set the mood for our guests. Isn't it heavenly? Madame clapped her gloved hands before launching herself into a hug with a bemused Duke and Duchess of Windsor. Margot took a moment to watch the former King of England and his demure wife take time to greet their hostess and the assortment of shiny guests gathering in her wake. She knew the Munros were supremely wealthy, but to so casually touch a former king. As Margot walked around with the incense, she looked to wear a vase of white lilies and gold stems through the middle of a circular table. Madame had insisted they be painted for the party. No one 
loved an extravagant surprise more than Tilly Munro. For last year's Bastille party, she drained the swimming pool and had it filled with cruise champagne. Who could forget the fountains that had sprayed delighted guests with bubbles, coating their summer tans, dresses and tuxedo with a sticky layer of good cheer? Apparently, the only way to top such opulence was unexpected death. Early that morning, Madame Monroe had summoned Margot to her chamber and, while she dressed, declared that somebody would have to be murdered at the party. Nobody ever remembers what we ate or drank. Lobster or quail, Krug or Dom Perignon. They only remember the fun times. But murder, madam, Margot stuttered. Had her employer gone completely mad? Don't be silly, darling. Madame leaned into the mirror and closed one eye to draw on some black liner. I don't mean a real murder. Did you think? She turned to look Margot up and down before continuing to apply her eye makeup. It's a faux murder. Margot blinked. Who? Peggy Schramsberg. Madame's voice chilled a fraction before she said brightly, She doesn't know it yet. I'll just tell her before lunch. She's a good sport, though. Madame wondered if being a good sport extended to being a fake murder victim. Do smile, Margot. You look sour otherwise, and it's unbecoming for a young woman. Tonight's just a game, remember? It's going to be a scream. Now... Margot swallowed and turned her attention back to the party guests, particularly Mademoiselle Schramsberg, who stood nearby. The willowy American heiress wore a scoop-necked emerald gown cut low at the back. Crystals on the shoulders and her belted waist caught the light and her tight curls were set with a matching headpiece. She was chatting to a woman in a beaded blue dress. These flowers look magnificent, much prettier than natural lilies, don't you think? Mademoiselle selected two glasses of croup from the coops lined up with military position and gave one to each of the other guests, her hand shaking slightly. The women clinked glasses before Mademoiselle stepped back to admire the spectacle unfolding in the foyer. Trust Tilly to add that bit of extra magic to the evening, she said with a tightness to her voice, as everyone looked up to where the huge central chandelier had been replaced with a trapeze. The jazz band played louder and the spotlights pointed to the ceiling. A bird-like woman was perched on her feet, swinging on the bar, dark hair gelled across her forehead like a bathing cap, green glitter twinkling above her eyelids. The trapeze was pulled higher and the acrobat started to swing higher, garnering an appreciative whoop from the swelling crowd below. No one was more astonished than Monsieur Ted Monroe. He had just meandered into the foyer in his dashing white tux, tie undone, and walked across to find Madame Monroe, who had extricated herself from the Windsors. There you are, my love. Can't fasten this jolly tie. He stopped mid-step, and the acrobat swaggled above him, arms dangling down as she unfurled her nimble body. It became apparent that she was not wearing a leotard, but sequined nipple tassels in the shape of stars. Shut your mouth, dear. It won't do to drool on your tax, Madame Munro murmured to her shocked husband. The crowd whooped again, and Peggy Schramsberg touched the hostess on the arm as she pointed to the trapeze with a white-gloved hand. Whatever will you think of next, Tilly? What a riot! I can't imagine what else you have planned for tonight's little soiree. Madame gave her young guests a taut smile and said, Oh, can't you? 
The dark man, accompanied by a chic, tiny woman, greeted the host. The man walked with his broad shoulders, pulled back, the white tuxedo tailored to his frame. His hair was short and slicked back, and an unlit cigar dangled from his bottom lip. Margot recognised him at once. He was a business associate of Monsieur Monroe and Peggy Schramsberg's former lover, an arrogant man. She'd heard him brag as he smoked by the pool on previous visits about both his romantic conquests and his direct line to the German Chancellor. The woman by his side wore dusty pink chiffon with layers that hugged her curves and a fox fur stole draped around her shoulders. She smiled tightly as she took in the room a smile that did not reach her eyes. Instead, she raised an eyebrow at the man by her side, as if there are a million other places she'd rather be. Er, uh, Bloch, cuckoo, so glad you could join us, Madame crooned. I was thinking you might not make it. Beside her, Piggy went pale. Well, said Er, Bloch, after your husband guaranteed me priority for supply of their cloth, it would be ungracious not to show my face. And Coco here has been such a darling host for the summer. I could hardly deny her a party. Mademoiselle Schramsberg? He stepped forward towards the American and lifted her lip hand to his lips. Always a delight. You look splendid. She stiffened as he kissed her hand, her eyes darting around the room. Then she swallowed twice in quick succession, as if trying to suppress a cough. Margot poured a glass of water and passed it to the young American. Erblock and his companion stepped to the far side of the room to greet the other guests. Lingering at Mademoiselle's elbow in case she needed anything else, Margot moved her spiced incense to one side to stop it billowing up her nose. Madame Monroe had assured her that all the plans for the game were in hand, but with Mademoiselle looking so wan, Maybe it would not proceed. It hardly seemed fair if she was out of sorts. Or perhaps Peggy Schramsberg was a first-class actress. Margot looked between the two glamorous women, one older and shrewd, the other seemingly doe-eyed and innocent, as only the extremely rich could be. The crowd roared and clapped as the acrobat looped over her trapeze to hang by one leg. Her sparkly breast bounced around and nobody could keep their eyes off her. Monsieur Monroe wrapped an arm around his wife's waist and said to their American guest, Take lessons from this one. Nobody throws a party like my Tilly. Just hope the stock market holds and the er block keeps buying my cloth. And know he was a scoundrel to you. And mark my words, the man will realise what a fool he's been as soon as you set sail. But business is business, right? The world needs to keep spinning. Monsieur Monroe chuckled kissed the top of his wife's wavy hair and reached fish of some champagne. Margot had assumed the American was jittery because of the murder game that had been thrust upon her. Now she realised the pretty young woman's head was elsewhere. She was nervous about seeing her ex-lover. Her square jaw was clenched. As they clicked glasses, the heiress stretched her pale neck towards the ceiling like a swan and seemed to gather herself. Tilly... Wherever did you find this magnificent performer? Through Gabriel, one of our gardeners. Would you believe he used to be in a Parisian circus troupe? Really? Gasped Mademoiselle, fluttering a hand to her chest. He's a dish, darling Peggy, but it never ends well if you mix with the staff. Nobody likes it when somebody steps outside their station. 
Monsieur Monroe interrupted. Well, I don't care where you found her. Tilly, I like her. He gawped up at the acrobat again, then winked at Mademoiselle before giving his wife another squeeze. Madame flinched slightly, and Margot couldn't work out if it was a reaction to her husband or the younger woman. Thinking of Gabrielle, Margot stared past the terrace and pool where the terracotta roof of the garden shed poked out from the circle of Bay Hedge. Was he there now? She wanted her note delivered before service started, and this silly murder game was finished. She hoped, after this silly murder game was finished, she hoped he would join her for a glass of champagne on the clifftops overlooking the sea. The staff were permitted a drink once their duties were done. A patriotic nod to the holiday. Usually, Margot was too tired to partake, but Gabrielle's mysterious years away from the village since they last saw each other at school, his tales of travel from Madrid to Istanbul with his circus troupe, fascinated her and left her wanting more. She paused to breathe in the incense. For the first time, her future smelled to the joys of discovering faraway places. The foyer was a dreamy haze of silk, perfume, first shrugs and sequins as the five-piece band started their next tune. Madame Monroe nodded at Margot and gestured for her to keep circling the room. From the corner of her eye, she spotted little Maxime Laurent trussed up in a miniature tuxedo, surely tailored by a special request of Madame, greeting guests at the front door with a cheeky grin. Dark curls slicked back with brill cream. To the women, he handed out posies of rosemary, thyme and lavender, which they threaded about their wrists with fine red, white and blue ribbons. Each man was issued a boutonniere of tight buds that matched the posies. Maxime was Gabrielle's younger brother, and they lived with their father in the caretaker's cottage on the other side of the hedge. Margaret was fond of the boy and often minded him when his father had to work after dark or on a weekend. Maxime loved picture books, so Margot would scavenge the second-hand bookstalls at the village markets for pretty bargains she could read with him. She walked over to where he stood. His eyes grew large with delight when he saw her, and he dropped the velvet pillow he was holding for the petunias and gave Margot a hug. Mama! Maxime! She knelt down to pick up the pillow and gather the few remaining posies from the marble tiles. You look magnifique! She kissed him on both cheeks and gave him a hug. The boy yawned and dropped his shoulders. I'm sleepy. Will you take me home and read me a story? I can't, little one. Not while I'm working. Maxine's face fell and she pinched his cheeks. What a good job you've done. He glanced. She glanced around and decided nobody would miss him now, so they were well into their second and third glasses of champagne. You should run home. But, madame, he looked as if he might cry. Shush, Maxime. She squeezed his hands. Over his shoulder, she saw Madame Monroe grab another champagne coupe and do a few steps at the Charleston with one of the American writers from the village. Margot had often seen these writers at the cafe, craned over coffee in the morning and anise-flavoured pastis in the late afternoon. They debated politics with the locals and each other. They read each other's notes and idled away the time drinking and scratching in their leather-bound journals. She thought of her own notebook upstairs, a treasured birthday gift from her mother, lying blank. She ushered the child back to the door. Go home, Maxime. She kissed the top of his head. Margot! Madame's voice trilled across the room. 
Margot stepped into the doorway to shield the child from view, then slipped her hand into the apron pocket and took out the note. Can you give this to Gabrielle? But please don't tell anyone else. She kissed his, she kissed his soft cheek. He smelled of cut grass and soap. It's our secret. Promise jure. He lifted his pudgy hand and proffered his little finger. I promise, she repeated. The boy ran outside, past the pool, and disappeared into the shadows, waving her note in his sweaty fist, leaving Margot holding the pillow. She tucked it into a bay window before resuming work. The dazzling acrobat continued to spin overhead, and the evening air was thick with jazz and breezy conversation. Glamorous women clamoured for the attention of scruffy writers and debonair politicians. Thousands of lights glittered over the sapphire water of the pool. The ocean just below the cliffs was an inky black. Margot sighed with nerves and a dizzy kind of happiness. It had been one of those typical hot, dry, coat de jour days that run into each other throughout July. But the slap of the sharp summer minstrel against her cheek was a reminder that a cool change was on its way. When it was nearly midnight, Margot did as instructed and hid herself behind a pot of palm on the villa's balcony so she would have a clear view of Mademoiselle Schramsberg. She checked the watch Madame Monroe had lent her, 11.56pm. Four minutes before the American heiress would glide onto the balcony swathed in silk and doused in half of worth perfume, pat her curls and, well, there was nothing to be done but wait. Laughter and the clink of crystal flowed through the open doors and gauze curtains billowed in the breeze. Usually she would tie them back, but Madame had instructed her to stay in position. It wasn't her place to disobey. Instead, Margot wriggled her legs to stop them going numb and took in the scent of the hillside. The salty wind was brushing up the cliffs from the Mediterranean and the Grand Avenue as Cyprus swayed. She was soothed by the trickle of fountains at each end of the pool. 11.58 p.m. A whistle that sounded like no bird on this stretch of the coast made her catch her breath. When she looked at the garden, a shadow disappeared into the far bay hedge. He was there, waiting for her. 11.59 p.m. The American stepped from the dining room onto the balcony and lit a cigarette. A gentleman in a white dinner jacket stepped out to join her. Er block. Or was it Monsieur Monroe? Both were broad and dark. It was hard to tell from where Margot squatted, and he had his back to her. Margot froze. This wasn't part of the plan. The gentleman muttered something under his breath to the heiress, and Margot strained to hear. Then he grabbed Mademoiselle's forearm. You shouldn't have. She snatched it away. Stop. You won't get away with it. The gentleman went inside, and Mademoiselle flicked her cigarette over the balcony. She put her hand to her long neck and stroked it. Her bare back was tense. Margot expected Mademoiselle to turn and face her, but the American kept her eyes fixed firmly on the sea, as if she were looking for something. Margot reached for the gun behind the palm, steadied the cool barrel against her thumb, and held it skywards. Bang! Fireworks screamed into the sky and exploded in tiny silver stars as the beautiful area spluttered and fell to the ground. She writhed, silk sliding up her legs and pulling at her hips. Blood seeped from the back of the American's head across the terracotta tile. Margot froze as she felt warm liquid dribble down her neck. Mm -hmm.
Wow, what an exciting opening. I think it's amazing how Kirsty manages to create a sense of tension against this backdrop of an extravagant party. If you'd like to read more about how Kirsty approaches her writing, check out our blog because we have an interview with her there. And of course, as I mentioned, she also appeared on episode 240 of this podcast. Now, if you would like to write your own novel one day, the courses at the Australian Writing Centre are geared towards every level. So if you've always dreamed of writing but have no idea where to start, check out the course Creative Writing Stage 1. And that's what Sarah Bailey did. And she is now a best-selling author of multiple books that are always, I see them all the time in bookshops. It's fantastic. My name's Sarah Bailey. Um, I've got a debut novel through Alan and Umlin out at the moment. It's called The Dark Lake. It's a crime thriller. I was working in advertising at the time and I was working at a great company and had a really sort of good career, but I just had this burning desire to write all the time. I'd heard really good things about the Australian Writer Centre's course. Um, the reviews were always really positive and people always sort of providing really good feedback on social media. So um, I just thought that was a really good place for me to start. I found Nicole Hayes, the tutor that I had in the course that I did through the Australian Writer Centre, really inspiring. Um, really down-to-earth um, teaching style, but just a really great way of um, pulling together some of the writing skills that she's picked up over the years. She had such a passion for narrative and structure um, and being a published author, she had some, some really practical um, advice and knowledge to share as well. The process for me was just setting my own deadlines, which was something that was covered off in the Australian Writer Centre's course as well. Went, this is how many words I'd like to have by these different points along the year and then I um, just worked towards getting the words down and then I sort of um, approached agents and then the agents helped me approach publishers. In the end when Alan and Umland decided to publish the novel and um, that was all confirmed, it was, it was amazing. It was just such an amazing um, experience to go through and I felt really fortunate um, but also really proud because it had obviously been you know, a really hard, um, hard sort of journey to get there. Through the course at the Australian Writers' Centre, I discovered that writing was something that was really, really important to me. And then of course, you know, through meeting the people and the tutor that I had, I also picked up a lot of really invaluable skills as well. I think it really just set me off on the right path. Um, and then since then, obviously, so much has happened in my world in terms of writing that I really do see it as the first step um, that, I, that I took along that path. It's amazing. I've, I feel very, very fortunate to be in the position where that's, that's my current life. So I think that was a, that was hugely important um, in terms of getting getting started. Definitely, anyone who's interested in writing and sort of taking a, a, a more serious step toward that as a career or even just a, a more specific hobby, I think the Australian Writer Centre's courses are really worthwhile. I think it's just it's always nice to be um, in an environment where people are passionate about what you're passionate about, um, and I think that the um, the skills and the information that you get from from courses like that just just help you sort of really focus. For me, the creative writing course was was a great starting point. I think it just made me um, rediscover my love for writing at a basic level all over again. Um, so I think that I've definitely spoken to other friends and have suggested that they give it a shot. If you'd like to find out more, go to writerscentre.com.au/creativewriting. Thanks for listening to Story Sessions of So You Want to Be a Writer. You'll find more details about the podcast and a wealth of writing resources and courses at writerscentre.com.au. This podcast is brought to you by the Australian Writers' Centre. 
do connect with us on social media, on Twitter and Instagram at writerscentreau, and of course, connect with us personally in our free podcast listener community on Facebook. Just search for So You Want to Be a Writer podcast community and request to join. Alice and I will be back to our regular programming in the next episode. Thanks for listening, and I look forward to chatting to you again next time.